and get our Bibles open to the book of Job one last time together. This is our sixth class of six. And just to remind you where we have been in this study, our very first class was about an overview of Job where we just talked about who wrote it, when was it written, where did Job live, all of those kinds of good things. We talked about a kind of the breakdown of the book, a way to think about the book is just to think that there are bookends on the book of Job, the first two chapters and the last chapter. And those really tell you so much about what's going on in the middle. Those are your interpretive keys for how to understand the many, many long, 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 tiring speeches that go on in the middle between Job and his friends. Uh, crucial information is missed by them in the beginning. That They don't know. Job doesn't know what you read when you read Job 1 and 2. He doesn't know it while he's suffering. And so that's kind of a breakdown. Prologue is in chapters 1 and 2. The epilogue is the last chapter and everything in between is speeches between Job, his friends, and then ultimately and thankfully God. Job fits in the wisdom literature part of your Old Testament. It's at the beginning uh, of that section. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, etc. We spent two classes then talking about really the uniqueness of the book of Job in the Bible, that it provides early gospel anticipations because Job was a contemporary of Abraham. The things that are being revealed through the book of Job are really some precious things to be revealed to God's people, to believers early on as they would have heard the story as it was written to um, help encourage them through suffering. And it gave them, a cat, it gave them categories for things that were, are gospel-centered types of things. Jesus suffering, an innocent man suffering, um, God not answering for so long in the suffering and so forth. Um, also gave you a next part for the next two classes, four concerns in the scene of suffering. We need to concern ourselves with character, God's character above all. We want to make sure that we honor his character and we need to be concerned about our own character while we suffer. We need to be concerned to actually comfort, to make sure that the one who is suffering and who is under trial and adversity, that we provide comfort. We need to be concerned to control ourselves, to not let our thinking run off in directions and into places we don't want to speak from that which we do not know. And Job made up speeches on that which he did not know. And that he could have benefited by controlling himself a little bit more. And then we said, are you concerned about your confidence? Boy, if, if anything stands out in chapters 4 to 31, it is two parties, Job and his pals, and they are absolutely confident of what they're saying to one another and neither of them are right. And so there is a place to be skeptical of your own confidences, not confidence in the gospel. That you should never grow, um, lose confidence in. But confident in what we think God is doing and what he might not be doing, that there's room to reevaluate over and over to make sure we are confident about the right things. Um, I recommended some books to you last time and I can provide those for you or you can actually see those on last week's handout if you get on the website and look at those. Today is class number six. We are going to talk about some realities that you just have to face at the scene of suffering. Before we jump in, why don't we pray and ask God to meet with us one last time as we dig into this book. Lord, we do ask that you would reveal uh, yourself to us in your word here, that you would give us wisdom to understand your word, 
that we would draw encouragement from your word as we face suffering in our own lives. I thank you, Lord, for um, what you're doing in this church family. Um, The suffering is from you. The adversity is from you as much as the blessing is that you have given to us. And we want to learn how to accept it and not just accept it, but to live well under it. We know that we will do that by looking away from ourselves and pointing each other away from ourselves to you. And we even do that now as we study your word. We look away from ourselves, but we look to you. And we ask for help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, on the back side of your sheet, if you have it, I'm going to give you five realities to face at the scene of suffering. I may speak a little faster this time because I want to get through all of these if we can. All right? The scene of suffering, number one, may severely test relationships. That's just a reality to face. Um, Look at Job chapter one, or chapter two, actually. You see a marriage being tested greatly. Chapter two, verse nine. Then Job's wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, before we get too hard on Job's wife, we need to remember that she just lost 10 children. And she sees her husband as good as dead in front of her. All of the relationships that she would have invested herself in are either gone or as good as gone. It looks by all accounts, concerning her husband. And from that sense of great grief and loss and tragedy, these words come. Why are you still holding fast to your integrity? Curse God and just get it over with. And these words are not helpful for Job. Her words actually present quite a temptation to Job to do the very thing that God is upholding him to do, to stop doing the thing that God is upholding him to do. God is upholding him to endure, and she's trying to say, give up. How did he respond? Well, actually, his words come from that same location of great loss and grief, and without calling her a fool, he doesn't say, you fool. He says, you're speaking as a foolish woman would speak. So there's actually some carefulness in what he's trying to say, and it's, it's hard. And without commanding her, he questions her to consider this. Shall we not accept adversity as we accept blessing? I mean, this is quite a severe test that is going on in the marriage. Um, was she satisfied with this answer? It seems like you never hear from her again, or at least hear about her, but there actually is one other time when she is mentioned. Job chapter 19, Job says this. We'll look at this later, but Job chapter 19, verse 17. Here's what he says. My breath is offensive to my wife. That doesn't mean he needs a breath mint, although I'm sure he did. Um, And I am loathsome to my own brothers. Whether the idea here is that he was diseased and she knew he should not breathe on her or whether it is whatever comes out of my mouth is just offending my wife. The point is she doesn't, she doesn't, she's not drawing near to her wife. This is a, this is presently my breath is offensive to her. There's an offense between me and my wife and it appears that it went on for some time. So a marriage and a spouse relationship 
can be tested severely. It's a reality to face. And then obviously, chapters 4 to 31, good friendship, just between a man and his brothers, his, his, his friends, um, can be tested severely. These friends are in a wisdom duel together. They're in a shootout with each other. They're trying to conquer the other. They're trying to silence the other party by using their incomplete view of God as a club to assault the other, bludgeon the other. And Job is really the underdog, not just because he's, he's suffering and he's really sick, but he's the underdog because it's one against three. They keep tag-teaming. And he has to just keep getting back in the ring himself. He's the only one. And so he's really at a disadvantage and Job could not accept the explanation of what God was doing that they were giving him. And he shouldn't have accepted their explanation. And they couldn't accept the explanation that he was giving them about God. And they shouldn't have accepted it either. And so how do you navigate a friendship through those kinds of difficult waters? Neither sufferer nor the friends were reliable guides to depend on to get to the desired destination in suffering, which is endurance. So these friends are, are, are unloading sarcasm at one another, personal insults at one another. They are assigning motive. And all of that com- complicated and worsened their relationship. And so friendships have difficulty surviving that kind of, of effect. In fact, if you look at Job 19, let's just go there for a second. Let me show you this. Listen to what Job says here. Think about all of the different relationship categories He brings up here, Job 19, verse 13. God has removed my brothers far from me. And my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed and my intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I am a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he does not answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. Here's that verse. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even young children despise me. I rise up and they speak against me. All my associates abhor me, and those I have, um, I have, those I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Pity me, pity me, O oh my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Now, there is some wrong thinking in there and a wrong assessment of what was going on. But think about what Job did there. Any horizontal relationship he possibly could have experienced was being tested severely. He just made a thorough list of about every category of relationship, and he says every single one of those has been tested and challenged by his suffering. So if Job is having conflict and challenges with his wife and every relative, his servants, his friends, whom can he turn to? Increasingly, Job feels very isolated. He feels very lonely. And we can say, well, at least he can turn to God. And he did, and God didn't answer him. Job even feels like God has turned on his relationship with Job, which is actually the furthest from the truth. But go to Job 29. So not only do you have you know, a husband-wife relationship being tested, not only do you have uh, every other horizontal relationship tested, but even Job believes his relationship, his vertical relationship with God is being tested. Look at Job 29, verse 4. Actually, go back to verse 1. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I was in that I were as in months gone by. He's, 
wishing he could just go back. As in the days when God watched over me, meaning when God watched over me with love and favor, when his lamp shone over my head and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in the prime of my days when the friendship of God was over my tent. So what Job is saying is, I'd give anything if God were my friend again. Now, God has not stopped being friends with Job. We know that. But that's what it feels like from his perception. Go to chapter 30, verse 19. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up, and you turn your attention against me. You have become cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride. And you dissolve me in a storm, for I know that you will bring me to death into the house of meeting for all living. You're just, you're just going to kill me, he says to God. So Job equated all of his prior righteousness, his prior blessing and integrity. He equated that with God's friendship. Those were all evidences in his mind of God's friendship. Job, as far as he could tell, never betrayed God prior to this suffering, which caused, uh, there was no betrayal that caused this loss. So the only explanation in his mind is, God must have betrayed me. Explain yourself, God. And what a test on Job's relationship with God, which again is why it is so important for us to protect our view and our understanding of who God is while we suffer And that's exactly what Satan wanted to accomplish and defeat Job with is he wanted him to see God's deficiencies. God doesn't have any. And this is a reality that you'll have to face most likely at the scene of suffering. So don't be surprised at the scene of suffering if some relationships get tested. Job helps secure us for this very reality. Number two, the scene of suffering is influenced by how you want God. The scene of suffering is influenced by how you want God. Let me refresh our memory here just a little bit about what lies underneath or below Job's cry for God, Job's desire for God, because Job does want God. God is not, but but God is silent. He's not answering Job's cries. Satan had come, if you remember, in chapters one and two and attacked God's character in heaven. Uh, Basically, Satan is saying to God, you are not enough alone, in and of yourself, to hold Job's loyalty. You have to bribe him to be loyal to you with blessings. You give him all this stuff, and of course he wants you. Of course he holds fast to you. Touch those things, though. Take those things away. Take them away, and when Job sees that all he has left is you, Yahweh, he'll curse you to your face. That's how satisfying you are. It's that kind of thing that's being brought against God in heaven by Satan. Now that in and of itself would be hard enough for a righteous man, a God-fearing man to deal with. But what compounds that is God is silent. As Job cries out to God for explanation on this, God remains silent. God doesn't even come to him and say, now Job, just quiet down for a minute. Um, I, I need you to trust me. There's something going on you can't see. Just hold on. He doesn't even say that. But he is securely holding on to Job. He's upholding him to endure the suffering. What God is proving is that Job doesn't 
need blessing. He doesn't need good health to remain loyal to God. In fact, Job doesn't even need God's explanation for why this is happening to remain loyal to God alone. That is what God is upholding Job for securely, but silently. And it's brutal for Job. And that's the platform Job is on as he cries out uh, for God at the scene of suffering. And of course, he does not know about all of this. So Job indeed wants God at the scene of suffering. There is no doubt about this. Go over to chapter 23, verse 10. I want to show you this. Here's how badly he wants God. 23, verse 8, actually. Behold, I go forward, and he is not there. I go backward, I cannot perceive him. Then he acts on my left, and I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job is almost schizophrenic sometimes, is he not? I mean, he is, and by the way, that would be another reality to face at the scene of suffering. You are going to be that way. You're going to have moments where you are so lucid and clear and just brilliant with your theology. And then there's other times when you are going to be a mess in every possible way. Um, and that's Job. But what impact, there's no doubt, Job is looking for God no matter where he turns. But what impacts Job most at the scene of suffering is how Job ends up really wanting God. Because that determines how well he suffers or not. Job wanted God, but he wanted God primarily for an an explanation. Job had set his heart on getting an explanation or getting the cause of his suffering. And God then becomes the means to the end that Job wants. God becomes subservient to that desirable end. He wanted God, but he wanted God for the explanation. And that is what unravels him in his suffering, adversely affects him as he suffers. In a sense, Job is saying, draw near to me and tell me why. To tell me why. But what if God is doing something very important in which he cannot or will not draw near to give that end? If Job wants God in his suffering as a means to an end that God won't give, Job might not feel like God is very near to him when actually maybe he is in another way. Remember, God is proving that he alone is sufficient for Job in his suffering. And he is available for Job as the end, but he is not available as the means to the explanation. If Job seeks God in that manner, Job will find God to be near and to be a comfort that he just wants God. I just want you. God will be near. But if Job wants God so that God can give Job something else, then that actually falls right into the accusation that Satan leveled against God in chapters 1 and 2. Satan could say, Job doesn't want you for you alone. He is loyal to you because you are a means to blessings. So, 
if in the suffering, Job wants God in a similar pattern, a similar way, as a means not to blessing, but a means to an explanation, then God won't draw near. And Job is very confused, and he's frustrated by this, and he can't yet see that what he craves is not so much God primarily, but the explanation he wants God to give him. And as you read through all of Job's speeches, anytime he speaks, it's debatable if his speeches and declarations about God reveal that he actually wants God alone for God. But more and more, he wants God for something. And so this greatly impacted how well or how poorly Job endured his suffering and his endurance began to fade. And did God mercifully uphold him anyway and keep him faithful to him? He did. Satan believed Job only wanted God for the stuff God gave him. Satan believed Job only wanted God as a means to other ends. Job increasingly throughout his speeches sounds more and more like that is what he wants God for. And he doesn't do well. And that is a reality to face. Your ability to endure suffering well depends not on if you want God, but how you want God in your suffering. If you want God so that, I want God so that he'll do fill in the blank, What if you don't get it? What if you don't get it? If you want God primarily for relieving your pain, if you want God primarily for ending the rejection you're feeling from whatever friendship, if you want God primarily to relieve the discomfort, to take away the conflict, and he does not do that, will you be satisfied in him? Will you be encouraged in him? Will you be strengthened in him? Most likely not. Because when we do that, we reduce God as a means to an end. We we reduce God maybe even as a means to an idol. If you want God primarily to alleviate your discomfort and he draws near to you but doesn't alleviate your suffering, do you even notice that he drew near? Do you even recognize that he did? Do you even see as legitimate him drawing near but not giving you what you need or asking for? But if you want God for God alone, if you draw near to him for him alone and your suffering keeps going on, I believe that you will find God to be a unique comfort you would have never known as you endure Listen, it is not wrong at all to seek God for other good things. Let your requests be made known to God. It is not wrong to do that, especially in suffering. You should ask, you should knock, you shall seek, and you should find. But when we start to want the gift above the giver, then we're in trouble, especially at the scene of suffering. If God the giver has determined that you are not yet to receive the gift that you're pleading for, what you do next, attitude-wise, will determine how well you suffer. And this is where Job began to falter. But 
if you primarily seek the giver, regardless of what he gives, you won't be disappointed. Let me just take you to a couple of psalms to show you how the psalmist felt this way. Psalm 42, verse 1. You know these. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? Verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. He wants him and him alone. Psalm 62. Another familiar psalm. My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. You see, when you get God, you actually get the stability. You get the stronghold. You get the salvation. You get the refuge. When you get him, you get everything. He's not the means to other things that you need. He is the everything you need. And there's a, there's a nuance of difference in that that is significant and that changes your attitude and changes the way that you pursue him and rest under him. Go to a chapter 63 or a Psalm 63. Look at this. Oh God, you are my goal. God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power, your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied with marrow and fatness and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, if you're in the shadow of the wings of a bird, you're pretty close to the bird, right? Under the wings, close, being cared for. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Psalm 73, um, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, I desire nothing else but you. The nearness of God is my good. Um, How does Paul say it in Philippians 3? Let's get some New Testament language in there for us to help us. Verse 7, whatever things were gained to me when before I had Christ, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Um, I'll suffer the loss of everything. Take it all away. I've got something of value that goes beyond everything. It's knowing him. I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Gain him and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I need to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Listen. Jesus is not your Uber or your Lyft to your refuge. He is your refuge. How you want God at the scene of suffering will greatly impact how well you suffer. 
So go to God. Ask for anything. Ask for everything. But be watchful over your heart so that you don't reduce Jesus to a means to a more desirable end. He must be the end in your suffering. He must be the goal in your suffering. Your suffering may not cease, but you will have him uniquely as a comfort beyond all comforts. And you will find endurance within your grasp. What do you want more at the scene of suffering? Do you want the end of suffering or do you want Jesus who will draw near with his comforting presence to endure it? Thirdly, at the scene of suffering, the scene of suffering is an effective means to sanctification, even for the best of us. Job's scene of suffering was a very effective place for God to reveal sin, to have it be confessed, repented of, and restored to godliness. That's sanctification. Progressive sanctification. God said Job was in a class of his own. Do you remember this back in Job chapter 1? Here's what's said about Job. Verse 1, there was this man named Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Um, that, what, what more could you say about that? God says this about him. He confirms that he's a blameless and upright man. Uh, there's no one like him on earth, fearing God and turning away from evil. He says it again in chapter, um, or and it says at the end of verse 20, uh, that chapter 22, that he did not sin or blame God in any of this. And yet, yet even though his suffering was not a consequence to a sin that he had committed, even though that wasn't the case, Job was still not exempted from needing sanctification. Do you understand that? So let me say it this way. A blameless man, a righteous man, a God-fearing man, an evil-avoiding man still needed sanctification. When will Job no longer need sanctification? Well, he's already come to an end of that, hasn't he? Long, long time ago. But until then, even if his life is above reproach, he needs it. And the scene of suffering has an uncommon effectiveness in helping even godly men and women be sanctified. For this godly man, his suffering was not preceded by any particular sin or rebellion, but his suffering revealed within him that he still had an inclination towards sin and rebellion that Job needed to be trained to avoid. Does that make sense? That's sanctification. Though there wasn't an act of rebellion or an act of sin that preceded the suffering, the suffering revealed that he still was a mixed creature. He still had this need to avoid the sinful inclination that just indwelt him. And suffering was a great place for him to learn that. Why do you take something already precious like gold and put it in the fire? To burn off the impurities and to make it more pure. And Job said that in 23.10, that when I come forth from the fire, I will come forth as gold. Job's suffering revealed an indwelling inclination still towards sin that he was acting upon too easily. And Job begins the revelation of that when he starts his lament in chapter 3, when he reveals what a blameless and God-fearing and upright man (laughs) avoiding evil still needs to be sanctified from. 
And the debates with his friends, all the arguments and the disagreements, they do the same. They just let this sinful inclination be revealed in him. It comes out in the furnace at the scene of suffering. And that's how God designs the scene of suffering to be. And it's just a reality to face. But we should never lose sight of how it all ends. That God is the one who pursues Job to repentance. That is the kind of God we have. So why does he let the sin come out? Not to shame Job. Not to punish him. But to restore him. At the end, his friends who greatly offended God. And he was... um, burning with wrath towards them. What did that God do? Did he act on his wrath towards his friends? No, he pointed to them the way of restoration through atoning sacrifice in Job's intercession. So don't lose sight of God's mercy and his goodness um, towards Job and his friends to restore them and bring them to repentance. And if God is that way towards Job and his three friends, Will not Jesus be this way towards us? Do we not see Jesus being this way towards Peter? Peter denies him three times. Jesus goes to the beach where Peter's fishing, catching nothing, and he says to him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? There's our savior, believers. There he is pursuing us unto repentance, restoring us, showing us his love and his favor. Jesus draws near to his disciples who are in need of sanctification. He will not withhold himself from you at the scene of suffering, nor will he merely highlight your sins so as to make you feel the shame of it. Rather, he will reveal through your suffering that you still have that same inward inclination for sin that you need to be trained to not act on. And he gives you his help and he loves to restore you when you fail. Don't be surprised to find your scene of suffering to be particularly effective in sanctifying you. Fourth, the scene of suffering requires God's timeless, versatile wisdom. The scene of suffering requires God's timeless, versatile suffering. God has for us all, and he had for Job, a wisdom that works for every in any scene of life that we find ourselves in. It's a timeless wisdom. It never grows outdated. It never grows unfashionable in God's mind. The scene of suffering requires it like any other scene does. It's also a very versatile wisdom. It works in scenes of blessing, scenes of joy, scenes of sorrow, scenes of suffering. It works in every scene of life, even the scene of suffering. In other words, when you enter into the scene of suffering, don't be tempted to think, oh man, There's got to be some special class of wisdom that I haven't seen yet that when I find it, it will unlock all of the keys and the mysteries of my suffering. That if you could only find it, it you'd make it through your suffering. Um, Do not think that way because God has already given that wisdom that you need for the scene of suffering. It's a timeless wisdom, a versatile wisdom. Job had it prior to his suffering. It was, the, it was sufficient for this scene that he enters into. Whether or not he relied on it, that's another question. And that will be the question for you and me. So the question is not, will we find secret wisdom that only works in the scene of suffering? That's not the question, because there isn't a secret wisdom. The question is if we will trust God with the old, timeless, versatile wisdom that we already have. You say, what is it? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. 
And to turn away from evil is understanding. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Wisdom starts there, worshipfully fearing God. And what that means is that you have an understanding on how to turn away from evil. That's the timeless wisdom and understanding that never grows outdated, that never grows out of fashion. Worshipfully fearing Jesus and understanding that you must turn away from evil. That is the wisdom that works for every situation you will ever be in. That's the wisdom you operate yourself by. That's the wisdom you place your life under. That wisdom did not begin with David. It did not begin with Solomon in the book of Proverbs. In fact, it existed, and Job knew about it. Let me show you this. Look back at Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, and watch this, fearing God and turning away from evil. You see, he had the wisdom way back then, patriarchal days. He had this wisdom. He was fearing God and turning away from evil. That's where wisdom begins. Job lived by that wisdom, evidently. Before the suffering ever arrived, God affirmed this too. God said, this is true for him. He, is, he fears God and he turns away from evil. Chapter 1, verse 8. He affirmed it in chapter 2, verse 3. So early in his suffering, when it finally came, Job lived closer to that wisdom. He relied more on it. And even when things began to unravel between Job and his friends, Job still knew that he had to have his friends help him get there. Go to chapter 6, verse 14. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend, he says to his counselor, so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. I can't leave this wisdom. I need you to help me. And your kindness is a means to me to get there, to not forsake the fear of the Almighty. But as you know, or as you can guess, this wisdom and the fear of the Lord seem to get lost or grow dim in Job's eyes. Job became more and more cavalier in his attitude toward God. And he appears to not fear him very much. He says in chapter 13, verse 3, but I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue with God. That's just kind of getting close to the line or maybe already over it, isn't it? And then toward the end of Job's speeches, Job has this moment of clarity. Go to chapter 28. Great chapter on the wisdom of God. Such great imagery here. Job has a moment of clarity again about the wisdom of God and fearing the Lord. Look at Job chapter 28, verse 28. And to man, God said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. What's the point in this scene of suffering? At the scene of suffering, what's wise for the sufferer? Well, it's, it's worshipfully fearing Jesus Christ. Meaning, you understand that you must turn away from evil when it rises up before you or if it rises up in your own heart. But notice what this God-given, timeless, versatile wisdom does not make available in your suffering. It does not unlock the mysteries of the cause or the why. It does not say, knowing the explanation of my suffering is wisdom. It doesn't say, discovering the cause of suffering is understanding. 
This is timeless and versatile wisdom, and it will not unlock the mysteries of your suffering. But what does it do? It keeps you worshipfully before God, and it helps you to pursue holiness and good character under your suffering while you turn to him. When you enter the scene of suffering and when it engulfs you, do not set aside this timeless, versatile wisdom thinking that there's got to be another key somewhere for you, another wise pursuit for you, a wisdom that unlocks, no, a wisdom that will interpret every square inch of my suffering and give me the answers I want. There isn't one. God doesn't have that. He won't give it to you. He's already given you a wisdom that will help you to fear him. That's what he wants from you. That's wise in suffering is fear the Lord, worshipfully fear him, and turn away from evil. Be content that God's wisdom is for you, for your character and your suffering. Don't be curious if God has another wisdom for discovering the mysteries of your suffering. You're going to say, why is this happening to my family? Why is this happening to my, my child? Why is this happening to my wife? Why is this happening to my parents? I don't know. I don't know. God does not give us a wisdom to get that answer that the wisdom he has given you will help you worshipfully fear him and turn away from evil as long as you are in that scene of suffering. It's timeless, it's versatile. Lastly, at the scene of suffering, one more reality to face. The scene of suffering should be accepted as much as the scene of blessing. Go back to chapter one. Let me ask this question. I'll repeat it in case you didn't catch that or if you don't have notes. At the scene, of, uh, the scene of suffering should be accepted as much as the scene of blessing. The scene of suffering should be accepted as much as the scene of blessing. Let me ask you this question. When was Job at his best in his suffering? When he accepted the adversity as from God. When was Job at his worst in his suffering? When he contended with God and demanded him to explain himself for bringing the adversity. I want you to see this. Look at Job chapter 1, verse 20. This is after the first wave of suffering hits him. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave... There's a season of blessing, isn't it? And Yahweh has taken away. There's the scene of suffering. Blessed be the name of Yahweh regardless. In the scene of blessing, accept it. We, none of us have trouble accepting the scene of blessing, do we? Didn't have to be trained to accept that. Oh, but boy, do we need training to accept the scene of suffering. At the front end of his suffering, Job could identify that God was indeed the one who took away blessing, that God is the one who gave him blessing and he was able to accept it. Now, how God was involved with that in chapters one and two is really important to understand. It wasn't a consequence for sinning and therefore he's taking away blessing. But this is through Satan's attack. Go to Job chapter two, verse nine. His wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. 
But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Here it is. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Shall we indeed just accept it when he gives us good stuff, but when he takes stuff away, we're not going to accept that from him? In both of these early instances, in Job 1 and in Job 2, when, and by the way, do you know what it says in conjunction with both of those statements? 122, right after saying, the Lord gave, the Lord take away, blessed be the name of the Lord, it says, through all that Job did not what? Sin, nor did he blame God. And then he gets done saying, um, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And then what does it say next? In this, Job did not sin with his lips. Okay? When did Job not sin in his suffering? When he accepted the adversity as from God. When did Job sin? Even boldly. When he contended with God in it. Now, I'm not going to walk you through a, a bunch of stuff in the middle, but let me take you towards the end. Go to Job 33. This is his friend Elihu. We could make a case through the middle of Job um, about how Job starts to go, huh, this suffering is vicious. And he starts to draw a line between the viciousness of what he's feeling and God. And he starts saying things like, God, you're cruel. The viciousness of what I feel, you're cruel. And when he took that kind of an attitude towards God, he then found himself not able to accept the adversity. God explained to me this injustice. So we could take you through that. We don't have the time to do that, but I'll just show you a couple, um, two more sections here. Look at Job 33. I want you to see that a, a quiet friend who sat for a long time and didn't say a word, and he listened to all of these knuckleheads go after each other. He says... Finally, when he speaks in Job 33, verse 13, he says, Job, why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all of his doings? So he could see what was going on with his friend. He wasn't accepting this anymore. In fact, he was complaining with God, and he was complaining because God doesn't give an account of all of his doings. There's another reality to face at the scene of suffering. God does not give an account of everything he's doing no matter how much you ask. He could see that Job was no longer accepting this adversity from God, but was instead just complaining. God was silent to Job, not giving an account of his doings to Job. This is not the accepting attitude that Job had early on. Now go to the, the last chapter, chapter 42. I've grown to love chapters 1 and 2 and chapter 42 more and more and more. Because they're so helpful. Um, watch this. Job 42, 11. Now let's go to verse 10. Yahweh restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And Yahweh increased all that Job had twofold. Now watch this. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him. And they ate bread with him in his house. There's fellowship together and they consoled him 
and they comforted him. These are things that Job was not getting during his suffering. Why did they do all of this? For all of the adversities that Yahweh had brought on him. That's very interesting. What a tender scene that has finally come out of the scene of suffering. There are no arguments anymore going on between relatives and friends, and there's no more conflict. There's no more, um, um, what was the word? There's no more offense going on. There's no more debates taking place between people. There's nobody sinning against one another. They're just simply there um, acknowledging that God did this. And, and consolation flows from that. Comfort is given in that. Fellowship is enjoyed in that. Gifts are given and it is sweet. When the sufferer and the counselors and those around accept it as from God, as much as they accept the blessings as from God, everybody's at their best. The best chapters in Job are one and two when Job doesn't sin, but he accepts the adversity from God. In chapter 42, when everybody else around him says, this is from God. Now, how it's from God is very important to understand and how it is not from God is very important to understand. But nevertheless, this is from God. The most unattractive moments in Job are when Job's view of God changes for the worse and he begins to assign a vicious motive to God which keeps him from accepting the suffering of God. And by the way, Job's friends did say all the time, this is from God, and they were wrong the way they said it. So that's not what's being talked about either. See, you need some... This word, chapter 1 and 2 and 42, are like your interpretive keys on the book. How do I understand what these guys are saying to each other in the middle? You have to know those chapters very well, what's going on there. So here's my question as we finish up. When will you be at your best in your suffering? When you accept it from the Lord. And when will you be at your worst in your suffering? When you contend with him about it. That's just a reality to face. All right. Any questions in the last 17 seconds that you have? Yes, Tom. Tom, it better be a good question. Because I've seen your questions before. Tom, I'm kidding. You know that. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, I kind of understand the sin of Job and the non-sin of Job, but if I was one to explain that to a friend, how would I explain that, that Job did not sin through this, but yet God chased him out pretty good at the end, so there was sin on Job's part. Yeah. So how would I explain that? Yeah. The, when it says Job did not sin in all of this, he's talking about the, the, the coming of the waves of suffering on him at the beginning. When it hit, he did not sin with his mouth. He did not respond. When he started opening his mouth in Job 3, it started to reveal, God started to use the suffering to reveal that he has a sinful inclination within him that he was acting on, entertaining, and it led to sinful thinking and sinful words that were said 
which by the end he needed to repent of. So did Job sin in his suffering? We could say, no, not at the beginning. And yes, as soon as it just kept going on, he did. Um, Job was a man of integrity at the beginning, and by the end he needed his integrity restored. And so that's how, I think that's how Job explains it. Um, it was a good start, but a good start doesn't guarantee anything in us. No, I've, often, I've thought about that and I don't have an answer for that. I would say I don't think it's like, I think it's probably shorter than longer. And by shorter, I don't mean like hours. I mean like probably days, weeks. Well, at least seven days. His friends sat with him for seven days and didn't say a word. Now, how long it takes them to get all of that speech out to each other, that's probably a little while. Do you have any ideas, Smed? Yeah. I don't think it's probably very long. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Is it going to be hard to... Okay, that's a really good question. Job was righteous and he sinned. Is it going to be really hard for us to, to do better than that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Ask anybody here who has gone through difficult suffering and they'll tell you about the way that they sinned in it even though their suffering may not have come upon them for, because they sinned somehow. Uh, it's just very difficult. You're right. And this is what we... And, and it kind of makes you go, man, will there ever be a righteous man who will suffer but not sin in it? See, those are early gospel anticipations, those early categories that are given to you by God. Dustin. Yeah, that's a good question. And, um, it, might, it might be just God giving a, a few different ways of explaining through two different scenes or waves of suffering how uh, he was sinless in it uh, without drawing a lot of attention of the distinctions between them. Um, I, I would probably lean more that way than try to say, well, there, no, there's something really significant about what's changing either for the better or for the worse. Um, I just think it's two, thir- it's two ways of saying something thorough about his righteousness in the early days of his suffering. But yeah, that's good. Anything else? Nick. Yeah, 
Uh, and what I mean is in, in the context of Job, for Job. Um, there's no doubt that the adversity is from God. The, the, the bookends make that clear. Um, but, <clears throat> his, and, and, I'll, and I'll say it again through his friends, his friends believed that it was from God, right? And God was wrathful towards them at the end because they did not speak rightly of him. So the way in which they are attributing it to God is not the way that God sees himself involved in it. Does that make sense? For Job, you and me, I don't have a book written by God that tells me on my scenes of suffering why it's happening. Um, But for Job, how it's an adversity from God is everything. Because there is a foe that is against God in heaven who is also involved. Now, nothing is happening outside of God's sovereignty. Um, And he's not willing to be attributed as the one um, who's doing this. He also did not accept Job's explanation for how this was from God. You're cruel to me. You're persecuting me. God's going, and you need to repent for saying that. So do you understand? So there, there were... Job requires a nuance of, of wisdom in interpreting how, what's going on here. Is this from God? Yes. How is it from God? Let's have that conversation carefully. Because Job said it was from God, and he had to repent. And his friends said it was from God, and they had to repent. So how is it from God? We, we talk about that very carefully. And um, we do that concerned about his character. We do that with self-control. Um, and all that good stuff. So why don't we close it there? If you guys have any other questions, um, we can stand around. I'll, be, I'll make myself available, but I want to honor your time. And thank you so much for attending the class. And uh, is there anything to say about next week? Omri and evangelism. Omri and evangelism. Omri will be here to evangelize you <laughs> next week. Where is he? Did he leave? Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gem of a book. What book of yours in the Bible is not a gem? Um, Sometimes we have these pages in our Bibles that are a little more crispy and white and untouched. I pray, Lord, that the book of Job would become a a dear friend to us, that we would wear out the pages there, that we would cling to what you were revealing there about yourself. You are good and you are kind, and you bring suffering so close to you and your son. it's It's your plan uh, to, to think about what you're doing in this world and not have suffering at all attached to you, um, it was not an option. What you wanted to accomplish could only be accomplished through you bringing suffering near to you. And are we then going to complain when it comes near to us? We, the ones who benefit so much from your suffering. Oh, Lord, make us in the better sufferers. Let us not be afraid. We have everything we need. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone.